New Orleans, the Big Easy, the city that care forgot. It's a place with few equals in history, architecture, or culture. Protecting and preserving a place this significant is difficult and never-ending work. Fortunately, the Preservation Resource Center of New Orleans has been committed to doing just that for over 44 years. Today's guest, Danielle Del Sol, is the executive director of the center, and she came into leadership during a time of tremendous challenges and opportunities, all of which we'll talk about on today's episode. So sit back, find a cool breeze, grab a Sazerac, and get ready to talk preservation with a New Orleans twist on this week's PreserveCast. From Preservation Maryland Studios in the historic podcast district of Baltimore, this is PreserveCast. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast. In early 2018, following a national search, the Preservation Resource Center of New Orleans selected Danielle Del Sol to lead the Historic Preservation and Economic Development Organization. Del Sol is an alumna of the Tulane School of Architecture Master of Preservation Studies program, where she also currently teaches as an adjunct lecturer. Before her promotion to executive director, Del Sol was editor of the Preservation Resource Center award-winning Preservation in Print magazine. She joined the publication as an intern in 2010 while pursuing her master's degree at Tulane in New Orleans. Danielle, it is a pleasure to have you with us here today on PreserveCast. Thanks so much for inviting me. So you live in one of these places and work in one of these places that is just so iconic, so evocative, hard to go to New Orleans and not fall in love with it and imagine yourself moving there. Um, Mm -hmm. What was your path to preservation? What got you involved in all of this um, and led you to the kind of work that you're doing in New Orleans? Well, I'll start by how I got to preservation, because it actually wasn't through New Orleans. I was scared into preservation while working as a, a business and real estate reporter in Little Rock, Arkansas. I was tasked, one of my beats was to report on realtor meetings in the bedroom communities, the new construction suburbs surrounding Little Rock, and they were all so soulless and terrible that I was just literally running in the opposite direction and begged my uh, my editors to let me report report on some of the restorations going on in the historic neighborhoods of Little Rock, which are absolutely gorgeous. And I was so excited to see the work and the care that these people were putting into these historic renovations. And at that time, I didn't uh, realize that this was actually a whole field. I just thought it was some, you know, handy people with a really cool hobby. Um, So I started reporting on historic buildings being rehabbed. And the more I reported, the more I fell in love with it. I left Little Rock uh, after a few years and moved to Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and started working full-time at UNC Chapel Hill. And one of the perks of being an employee there is to is getting to take free classes at the university. And I started taking classes in their urban planning department. And it's really there that I realized that historic preservation as a field is a hands-on, ground-up movement where communities can use the tools of historic preservation, the ethos behind it, to really make their own communities better. And that's what excited me about historic preservation. It just seemed like it was from the heart. It was, um, you know, from the ground up. And so after a few years of studying 
uh, urban planning and historic preservation there, I decided to make it official, and I started looking at preservation programs across the country. And when I found Tulane's Master of Preservation Studies program, it was just a no-brainer. It was in New Orleans. It was at Tulane, which is an excellent university. Um, it just felt like I was going to be coming to Mecca to study my field, and um, and I did, and it was an absolutely wonderful program. And like you mentioned, I, be, I interned at the PRC while a student, and here I am today. Yeah, so intern to executive director, straight path. Yeah, yeah. I won't say it will work for everyone, but I highly recommend it. <laughs> so PRC was your first, sort of your first job in preservation. And as we mentioned, you were working on preservation in print, which is funny. So PreserveCast, you know, we're pr- produced by Preservation Maryland, and we actually just got uh, preservation in print today. So sort of, oh, a, really? a, a, yeah, a perfect, Sweet. perfect uh, coincidence. And it's a fantastic, beautiful, full color, glossy magazine that is, you know, just beautiful work. Um, Thank but, you. But in, in terms of where did you do after, you, were you just involved with preservation in print until you jumped on board as the executive director? And, and what kind of preservation work, I suppose, interests you most? Is it the the hands-on piece, the community piece that you talk about? Is it the advocacy side? Um, is it, you know, actually the physical work? What what really gets you going? Well, I laughed, I laughed a lot while I was the editor of the magazine to myself because when I went to graduate school for historic preservation, I really thought, okay, I'm going to stop just writing about things that other people are doing and I'm going to learn how to do them myself. And then I ended up just writing more about what other people was doing. But the beautiful thing about being a writer and, um, you know, being the editor of a magazine like that is that it's, it was my job to know everything that was going on, the bricks and mortar work that we're doing, the advocacy work that we're doing, the education and outreach work that we're doing, and that the rest of the community is doing too. The, the really beautiful thing about Preservation in Print Magazine is that, yes, it's the magazine of the Preservation Resource Center of New Orleans, so, you know, we always report on the work that we as an organization are doing, but that is not the purpose of the magazine. The purpose of the magazine is to be a, a tool for education and for interest in preservation. Our hope is that someone's going to pick up this magazine at a coffee shop and start flipping through it and think, wow, this is really interesting. Oh, hey, I love this building. Oh, hey, I love this restaurant that's in this historic building. I want to read more about it. And that people become preservationists by realizing that they like the things that we like. Because if you're in New Orleans and you're walking around on the street and you fall in love with anything here, you're a preservationist. You might not know to call yourself that, but you are. And so we want to help you realize that. So for the magazine, we print 2,000 copies every month that just get distributed across the city. Um, we send the magazine to our members across the country and to important organizations that we want to get our magazine, just like Preservation Maryland. Um, but we also just drop them off at coffee shops, um, at grocery stores, any place that someone might pick them up and just flip through them because we want everyone to be a preservationist and to realize that they support preservation, whether they even knew what the word preservation meant or not. Yeah. It's a huge endeavor. I mean, it sounds like it's gotta be one of the, probably the widest distributed preservation publications of that scale and caliber in the country, I would imagine. Yeah. Even the national trusts is a quarterly and we publish nine times a year. You know, we have three uh, full-time staff people, um, we sell ads to support the the magazine, but it's still you know um, an investment for our nonprofit. But our board prioritizes this um, as kind of a gem of a product that we 
we especially have. And so we're very proud of it. But, you know, I, I did think when getting into to preservation as a field that maybe I'd go hands-on, maybe I would go some other direction other than just writing and, and being an editor. But I realized that by being an editor, I could I could learn as much as I could about all facets of the preservation field. And by being able, being able to tell that story, that that's how I could be the most powerful person possible in, in that role. And so, um, you know, preservation is all sorts of things. And, and I teach this in my preservation advocacy course at the Tulane School of Architecture. It can manifest its way and manifest itself in many ways. But for me, telling people's stories, what motivates them to do the projects they do um, is such a special thing. I mean, the, the one thing that that you know, I'm sure, and that everyone listening knows is that people who do preservation work are incredibly passionate about what they're doing. They're so excited to tell you every nuance and detail. And it's maybe it's because they're, they love the history of the building they're in, or if the building that they have isn't particularly beautiful, it's because they're excited that they're recycling this whole building essentially, or maybe it's their grandparents' home or their great grandparents' home. And they're passionate about the fact that this is their family and their history. And they want to tell that story. So being able to tell that story was a real, real joy for me um, as editor of Preservation in Print. So your your role has shifted now, and maybe this is a good way for us to kind of segue into the work of the Resource Center beyond just the magazine. Tell us a little bit, if you were trying to just talk to someone off the street uh, from around the country about what it is the Preservation of Resource Center of New Orleans does, how would you describe that work? What kind of programs, initiatives, what things do you work on? Yeah, we we try and do a little bit of everything. We try and be holistic in our approach to preservation in New Orleans. And, you know, you'd be surprised. You know how much historic building stock there is in New Orleans and how iconic it is. But it's still a struggle every day to keep people from tearing buildings down. And that might sound surprising just because we're so famous for our architecture, but it is a problem um, continually. So, um being good advocates for, for architecture in the city and for our historic neighborhoods and quality of life in our historic neighborhoods is, is what we focus on. And we do that in two main ways. The first is that we have a, essentially a preservation technical services umbrella where we do all sorts of technical work. We um, have an easements arm where we hold over 120 preservation easements on buildings across the state. We have a a bricks and mortar program called Operation Comeback where we acquire blighted and vacant properties, fix them, and resell them. And we also have another bricks and mortar program called Rebuilding Together where we go into communities and give free home repairs to low-income elderly homeowners, oftentimes Times veterans or single heads of households who just can't afford to do that work themselves. Um, and we've between those two programs, we've literally affected thousands of buildings and helped thousands of families in the city. We also are literally a resource center for anyone who is trying to do work on their home or their building. They can call us. They can get recommendations on contractors or subs to use. They can get advice. They can learn how to use tax credits. So we have all these sorts of preservation technical services. And then we have kind of the architectural appreciation, more fun things. We have educational workshops on learning about New Orleans architecture, about how to renovate your house or um, you know, where you should move into the city, which historic neighborhood is right for you. We work with kids to help them appreciate um, the architecture in their neighborhoods where they're growing up. Um, We throw really fun parties and home tours, and those are essential 
A, for appreciation, but B, for fundraising. They help bring in money for our organization to function. And we're advocates. We are at city council meetings. We're working with the city's planning commission. Anywhere where a historic building or zoning or lot use is um, mentioned or, you know, affected, we're there reading, making sure demolitions aren't, you know, happening where they're unnecessary. Any sort of thing at the city level that where we can be involved, we are. So it's a huge job. How big is your staff? We have 33 people on staff. Wow. So that's it's got to be one of the larger citywide local preservation groups in the country? Yeah. I mean, from my understanding, we are. And so you've, you're working in a lot of different directions. You're doing a lot of different um, types of work, as you say, both sort of the appreciation, the hands-on, the brick and mortar. Um, but... Mm-hmm. In terms of challenges, what are the biggest challenges that you see on the horizon or or that you're currently experiencing in New Orleans? I think a lot of people, particularly if perhaps they only visit the French Quarter, don't think about New Orleans in terms of challenges beyond maybe perhaps um, your precarious geography and you know with respect to hurricanes and things like that. But what are the what are the challenges? I mean, I guess hurricanes would be one of them. But beyond just that, what are you seeing there? What what are the things that worry you? Well, one of the things that worries us is the quality of life in historic neighborhoods. We know that for a historic neighborhood to really be functioning as a neighborhood, to be an organic being and living and breathing with residents, you know, activating it every day, that there have to be residents there. And so if anyone visits the French Quarter, what they'll notice is that there really aren't residents anymore. Um, The real estate prices are so high, and so many people have bought properties to use as second homes or to use as honestly, a short-term rentals, um, that there aren't a lot of people living there anymore. Um, at one time, there were kids in the French Quarter and schools and grocery stores, and there are very few of those left. And there's a, a small group of stalwart residents who, you know, are, are going to fight it out through the end, but um, living amongst hordes of tourists. And, and if you do look at the tourists per square foot, essentially, of the French Quarter, um, that come and visit every year. I mean, we had over 13 million visitors last year to the city. And I think it's fair to say that the vast majority of them went to the French Quarter, which is a 0.66 square mile area. Um, If you look at the impact of the amount of tourists that visit this precious gem of a neighborhood every year, it's vastly more than those who visit Venice. And Venice is having this, you know, over tourism crisis. So um, kind of the, the, the weight that's put on, um, our city's, our original city, which is the French Quarter, um, it's, it's a lot, and it, it drives people who want a high quality of life out of that neighborhood. And now this is spreading to our other historic neighborhoods where programs like, not programs, I'm sorry, um, where companies like Airbnb and other short-term rental companies have come in, and um, people from out of state have been buying dozens of properties and are leasing them out essentially as 24-7 bachelor pads you know, places for bachelor parties and bachelorette parties and uh, party pads is what I meant. Um, yeah. So, I mean, a huge problem. so what do you do? I mean, how do you, what, what's the response? What is, what are you guys thinking about? Have you responded? I know in Charleston, they're working, they've actually passed an ordinance to try and crack down on some of the short-term rental piece. But I mean, just 13 million people in one square mile, it's you're, you're loving it to death, but, but what's the answer? I mean, you can't, you're not, you're not going to say like, well, stop visiting us, you know, like that's not the answer, but what what do you do? We've long 
tried to um, entice people into other historic neighborhoods outside of the French Quarter, and we've had some success with that, and we're hoping to really develop that out more fully in the years to come. In terms of Airbnb, we have been advocating like crazy to our city council um, and to the mayor, and we recently had a huge success. Um, Just two weeks ago, our city council voted to place a moratorium on basically any Airbnb license um, that is not in a commercially zoned district. So if you're in a historic residential neighborhood, if you don't have a homestead exemption, um, if you don't live in the house where you are operating your Airbnb, you can't have an Airbnb for the next nine months while the city studies how to actually do this right. And we are thrilled. Um, We felt that the process from the beginning was flawed in terms of the city trying to legalize Airbnb and, you know, generate some sort of taxes from it. We understand that. Um, that is important, but we didn't feel that it was done right the first time. And so the fact that they've agreed to do this is a huge win for people in our historic neighborhoods. So affordability is a huge issue. What about, I mean, I, I mentioned, yeah. and I think a lot of people still to this day, particularly if they don't live there, New Orleans, they just immediately connected to Katrina. I mean, does every hurricane season just like a nail biter or are you, are you always still worried? Do you feel better about the future of the city with respect to that? Or is there still a big concern about flooding? Well, the, the Corps of Engineers has promised us that the levees will never fail again like they did for Hurricane Katrina because it wasn't the hurricane that caused the massive flooding. It was the failure of the levees. And so we all pray that that's true and that that information is accurate. But that said, of course, any hurricane season that comes, we're all just praying that um, that the city doesn't flood. And certain areas of the city are more low-lying than others and more prone to flooding. And so PRC is actually, we're going to be launching a series of workshops on um, livability in this historic city in coming weeks. Um, So what do you do if your historic house floods? Do you have to tear out your floors? Do you have to tear out your drywall? How do you let things dry out? Those sorts of things. How can you redo your front yard so that uh, you catch more water? Um, These sorts of issues are not going away. They're getting more and more prevalent, more and more important. And so we are looking to respond as a preservation organization in the appropriate ways. Um, This is a way that we're evolving moving forward. Yeah. And in terms of evolution moving forward, obviously affordability, you know, what's what's happening with climate and and flooding and and, uh, resiliency, those are all important. What other programs, initiatives? I mean, every executive director brings something sort of new to the organization or has some some ideas about what they want to do. And I know you, you joined the organization in February. Well, you didn't join the organization. You've been with them a very long time, but you joined in your capacity as executive director or assumed that new role in just early part of this year. So I guess this is sort of hitting you early, but I imagine you have some ideas about where you'd like to take the organization or some new things that you want to try out. Anything that you are willing to kind of announce or, or or want to talk to us about or, or concepts even? Yeah, I'd say this will be unsurprising considering my past role here at PRC, but I'd say that just telling people stories and telling the history of their places, whether they're uh, grand or, or smaller, all of that is important. And I think that moving forward, PRC is going to pay a lot more attention to having people's voices heard, being a, a place for dialogue when it comes to controversial issues, which some of these are because people have very uh, strong attachments to different places, different buildings in the city, and even if it's not public property, if it's private property, what things are done to certain buildings can all be very controversial. So 
um, how can PRC facilitate good dialogue and how can PRC tell the story, the stories that are important to people in the community who maybe their stories haven't been heard yet? Um, one thing I'm fully aware of walking into this organization is that, especially here in the southern city of New Orleans, preservation is viewed as an elitist endeavor by many people. And I told you about our Rebuilding Together program. I mean, we've helped thousands of people, and so we are by no means elitist. We don't just care about, um, you know, mansions and, and all of that. But the public perception is real, and it affects us, and uh, and it's valid to some degree that, you know, maybe we haven't been telling all the stories we need to tell. So um, New Orleans is a very special place in terms of the opportunities we have to do that. Um, our African-American culture here is incredibly rich and um, the history is just so beautiful and it deserves to be told of, of the free people of color who helped build so many of these neighborhoods, the craft families that have for generations learned these trades and kept these buildings alive. Um, there are incredible contributions from the Italian, the German, um, even Chinese populations that have come to New Orleans. As a port city, we have such a rich tapestry of cultures who literally built this city. And so there's a lot of stories to tell and a lot of people to recognize, and we are in a unique position to do that. So I really am excited moving forward to help people, help the whole city of New Orleans understand that PRC cares about everyone's story and everyone's buildings and that, you know, that that's what our mission is going forward. Um, we recently branched out in terms of what you might think of New Orleans architecture in celebrating mid-century modern architecture. We started a summer series called Mid-Mod NOLA. We're in our second year now, um, and it has been wildly successful because, you know, you think about New Orleans and you might think about an ornate ironwork or French or Spanish-influenced uh, buildings in the French Quarter, but you probably don't think of mid-century modern architecture. But there's some really cool mid-century modern architecture in New Orleans, and people love it. So we're trying to branch out in celebrating everything that our city has um, culturally and architecturally. Well, and that's, I mean, that's the thing that's spot on, and I think it's the, the way to do it. And we've been seeing more and more groups, you know, head in that direction. I'm just curious, mm-hmm. from your background in print, is that going to be more in preservation in print, or are you planning on doing more online, digital, social media? What's the, do you have any vision there? I'm just curious. Yeah, definitely um, more online. I mean, we I love print media, and I you'd have to pry preservation and print out of my cold, dead hands <laughs> because I think that there is still a market for people who loved a paper magazine and want to flip through it and want to have that experience. So I think that that's still very important. But moving forward, I think we have to be way savvier and more advanced when it comes to our website, our social media presences. Um, the fact that you have a podcast is rocking. Go Preservation Maryland. That's amazing. Um, I'd love for us to be able to do more oral histories, more video, you know, videos with people being interviewed giving us tours of their of their homes or their buildings definitely more interactive media that can be shared shared with the world instead of just our small membership who might get our magazine um, right and you have a story a- that has national significance I mean if and if you visited New Orleans and you didn't fall in love with it something's probably wrong with you right I mean that's <laughs> agreed <laughs> You have no imagination or anything. Yeah, you say. just, you, yeah, you're, you're, you certainly aren't a preservationist. I guess we'll put it that way. Right. So. Yeah. Well, I mean, it sounds fantastic. I mean, it sounds like there's a lot of exciting things there, and, and it seems like the organization obviously made the right choice in in selecting you as their new executive director. So, oh, we wish you nothing but the best. Now we're gonna get to some of the the fun questions here. 
Um, for anyone who's visited New Orleans, I know we're, we're all interested to hear your answer to this question. Favorite restaurant in New Orleans? Well, this may be a cop-out, but I'd have to say that Commander's Palace is the best place to eat in New Orleans. And why would you say down. that? What's your favorite dish there? Uh, well, probably shrimp and grits. Um, it's just the food is beyond compare. The drinks are beyond compare. And the ambiance is absolutely incredible. You can either sit out in their tropical courtyard or you can sit in their very beautiful main dining room, or you can sit upstairs, which is an all-glass room that's surrounded by live oak trees, so you feel like you're in an oak canopy. I mean, it's magical no matter where you're seated. It's just a, a really beautiful experience. Yeah, so. that's that, that's kind of hard to beat. Now, and, and, and I told you I was just going to ask you for your favorite restaurant, but now as a follow-up to that, just because that was sort of a cop-out, because it was, you know, that's kind of, you know, it's like, oh, really? This fantastic place is your favorite? Do you have a favorite, like, hole in the wall in a neighborhood that maybe someone listening to this who's planning a trip, maybe you're trying to get them to, to visit one of those off-the-beaten-path uh, historic neighborhoods? Anything out there that you could point us to? Yeah, let's see. Well, um, if you, you know, this may not be authentically Creole in the way that much... New Orleans cuisine is, but a lot of people don't know that we have an incredibly large Vietnamese population. Okay, here in there New we Orleans. go. Yeah, and so um, we have awesome Vietnamese cuisine uh, throughout the city. And there's a place in the Lower Garden District called Lily's, and Lily is always there, and she will greet you herself, and she will seat you. And the pho there is out of this world. Every dish there is just phenomenal. So I would highly recommend Lily's. Our producer is nodding his head. We're, we're putting it on our list. We're going to stuff. eating across the South. That'll be the next podcast. So. Oh yeah. Sign me up. Can I join? <laughs> yeah. All right. So before we leave you, the most difficult question for any preservationist, which is favorite historic building or place. Uh, in, in New Orleans, I'm guessing. It doesn't have to be New Orleans. No, no. I mean, I mean, that's obviously where you are now, but, um, you know, we have people from all across the country who come up with different unique places. It can be anything really. I guess in New Orleans, my favorite place is um, is Gallier Hall. It was built many years ago as, as a city hall for New Orleans in the late 1800s, and it faces a square called Lafayette Square, and it's a beautiful green space. It's in the heart of our CBD, and so um, and the streetcar runs right in front of it, um, and it was almost demolished in the 1950s to make way for our um, our city hall, which is a mid-century modern building. And so they were building the new city hall and they thought, oh, this is, you know, an old building. We don't need it anymore. But but people rallied to save it. And they did. And it is just a glorious building um, with incredible Corinthian columns out front. And, um, and the city now owns it. And they actually put up stands in the front, um, front balcony of the building for Mardi Gras revelry because the Mardi Gras parades go down St. Charles right in front every Mardi Gras. Perfect place, perfect way to end this interview. Um, Danielle, if people want to learn more about Preservation Resource Center, want to you know shoot you an email or uh, make a donation to the organization, become a member so that they can get this fantastic publication that we've talked about, how do they do that? Where do they find you? Thank you, Nick. That's great. Um, our website is www.prcno.org. And yes, please come visit us, sign up online. And if you come to New Orleans, come to our building. We have an incredible Gothic Revival building in the Warehouse District. It's a fabulous neighborhood, fabulous building, and our whole lobby is dedicated to helping people navigate the historic neighborhoods of the city. We have 21, and we have guides to each neighborhood with walking tours, sites to see, all of that. So please stop on by. 
fantastic. And we will definitely have a link to that website in our show notes so people can click on that and join very easily. Daniel, it's a pleasure. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for all the good work that you're doing. It's good to know New Orleans is in good hands. Thank you so much. You don't need to open a history book to find us. Available online from iTunes and the Google Play Store, as well as our website, presmd.org. From Preservation Maryland Studios in the historic podcast district of Baltimore, this is PreserveCast. This podcast was developed under a grant from the National Center for Preservation Technology and Training, a unit of the National Park Service, and in partnership with the Anacostia Trails Heritage Area. Its contents are the sole responsibility of Preservation Maryland and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of the National Park Service or the National Center for Preservation Technology and Training. Our website is made possible by the Historic Preservation Education Foundation. This week's podcast was produced and engineered by Rich Grouser. Our executive producer is Aaron Markovich. Our theme music is performed by the band Pretty Gritty. And most importantly, thank you for listening and preserving. Ooh.